0: My name is Rob Young. I'm the director of the program for the study of developed shorelines at Western Carolina University.
1: First question, when you saw these two hurricanes come through in the last month, Hurricane Fred and Hurricane Ida, as they came through the southeast and went to other parts of the country and wrecked hundreds of millions of dollars in damages in both instances, what were your immediate takeaways from what you saw what happened?
0: Well, I think, uh, particularly with what we saw with Hurricane Ida, uh, stretching with an impact stretching from Louisiana all up all the way up into the northeastern U.S. Um, in a state, the uh, state of Louisiana, that spent more than twenty billion dollars over the last decade building coastal protection and doing it in a very well organized way. Investing in science and engineering, investing in building barrier islands and levees and marshes and seawalls and, you know, doing so with a process that prioritizes the spending based on science and local needs. And still we have a storm that's going to cause billions of dollars of damage in Louisiana and has upended again the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And, you know, I think that ultimately the take-home message is that no matter how much money we spend on flood resilience and coastal resilience, trying to protect people from storms, you can't protect everything from every storm. And if you are in a vulnerable coastal area, uh, resilience perfect resilience is really unattainable. Um, the only way that we can ultimately reduce the vulnerability of people who are living in dangerous places is to solve climate change uh, because it's a moving target. In Louisiana, you know, they, as I said, they've spent $20 billion. They plan to spend uh, more than $20 billion more But sea level continues to rise on the coast of Louisiana at a rate faster than anywhere else in the United States. And our hurricanes are becoming supercharged by climate change, supercharged by warm bodies of water, uh, warmer air masses that can hold more water. Uh, The only way I think ultimately over the long run to slow down the rate of impact and the, the level of the disasters that we're seeing is to get a lot more serious than we have been about fixing climate change.
1: In the um, op-ed that you read for the New York Times, you talked about the infrastructure bill that's in Congress right now, varying signs of whether it's going to pass or not, what level of support it has. You talked about what was in that and um, how it might help in this instance. Tell us what you were talking about. Well, the infrastructure bill that's before Congress, it does include several
0: billion dollars for coastal resilience. But let's face it, there are over 60,000 miles of U.S. shoreline, uh, excluding Alaska. So that's open ocean and estuarine shoreline. You know, if you've driven around our beautiful coast in eastern North Carolina, you can understand why the state of North Carolina has several thousand miles of shoreline that weave around the estuaries of the Pamlico-Currituck-Albemarle sound system. So, you know, the idea that we can protect all of this, it just... Doesn't make sense. You know, again, the infrastructure bill includes billions for resilience, but the state of Louisiana alone has already spent over 20 billion. So even the new spending from the infrastructure bill and some new programs that are coming out of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, it's just a drop in the bucket of what we would really have to spend in order to even attempt to protect all of our uh, vulnerable coastal Communities, so it, you know it's really just not practical um, for us to do so. So you know that being the case, at some point we have to be willing to have a serious conversation about what we will do with those places that we can't guarantee protection for. How can we get some of those folks out of harm's way in an organized fashion that um, you know disrupts as few lives? And disrupts the economy as little as possible.
1: In both of your answers, you talked about areas that are in the path of, of storms that are not immune from natural from a natural or a weather disaster. Is there anywhere in the Southeast, including where we are in Western North Carolina, is there anywhere in the Southeastern United States that is immune from this in any way?
0: Well, I guess the, in the practical answer to your question is no, but there are degrees of exposure and vulnerability, right? Um, You know, we have here in North Carolina, just a few weeks ago, we experienced uh, the wrath of tropical precipitation um, that caused a significant amount of damage in Haywood County. But it still pales in comparison to the destruction that a a landfalling hurricane makes in a low-lying coastal region where we're talking about, you know, tens of billions of dollars of damage Uh, and damage to uh, thousands or tens of thousands of individual properties. So, you know, anybody can get caught unawares by uh, storms, flooding, large precipitation events here in the mountains. You know, a lot of our flooding is driven by tropical systems that come up here and, um, and, and drop significant amounts of rainfall in a very short period of time. But the coastal areas are, of course, particularly vulnerable, and the scale of the impact in places like eastern North Carolina compared to western North Carolina is just a completely different scale altogether.
1: And just for our listeners to go back a bit, what has your research shown over the past decade or so? Uh, we talk to you a lot, usually during every hurricane season. We've talked to you, one of us here at the station. What is the what is your research shown as? The last decade has gone on as climate change has gotten worse, as these hurricanes have become more powerful. What impact is that having on the shorelines in North Carolina and in the Southeast?
0: I think the the biggest take home message is that unfortunately, um, even though we know by and large where the vulnerable coastal areas are, you know, as scientists we have a very good understanding of. Uh, the places in this country, the places in North Carolina that are, are at risk from flooding. The problem is we still keep putting infrastructure in those places. So you can have all the best science in the world that tells you where people are going to be in trouble. But if we don't act on that information in a sensible way, then at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And You know, the fastest growing counties and municipalities in the country are still largely in the coastal zone. Places like Horry County, South Carolina, Charleston, you know, Wilmington area, everybody's flocking to those places. And uh, so, you know, the frustrating part, I guess, of of our mission here at the program for the study to develop shorelines, our job is to try and communicate this risk and exposure to the general public and Gosh, you know, a lot of people just don't seem to be listening, and then we're surprised when you combine rising sea level, supercharged hurricanes, and increasing damage, um, and displacement of people, and interruption of lives. Well, you know, uh, first we should stop doing the wrong thing,
1: and 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 then when we start doing the right thing, it will make a difference. You did do some research after what happened a month ago in Western North Carolina, thanks to the remnants of Tropical Storm Fred and the flooding that it caused, particularly in Haywood County. What were you looking at, and what did you find? I think primarily
0: we were interested in trying to determine, you know, whether we could have done a better job uh, getting folks out of harm's way. And uh, we looked at the storm hydrographs, so the the flood levels for the east and west forks of the Pigeon River and areas downstream. It's really just mind boggling how quickly that water rose in, uh, especially in the east fork of the Pigeon. Uh, It was really like a giant wave or tsunami that that came down that valley. Uh, The water level went up very quickly and came back down very quickly. I mean, we're talking about around two hours or so. And, that those kinds of events are very difficult to predict. When a storm sits up high, up on the divide, you know, in this case, over around where the Blue Ridge Parkway comes across, there are multiple watersheds that that rain is falling in. And the position of that storm, just over one or the other, can determine which way the water is going to go. And the National Weather Service can get some sort of an idea of whether or not there's heavy precipitation occurring. But they don't know exactly where that water is going and how much exactly is going into each watershed. And even if you had water level gauges that were perfect and went all the way up the river to the top of that divide, you still might have only gained yourself 30 or 45 minutes of warning in this. Um, it just happened so quickly. And then you put on top of that the fact that uh, the folks that were the most vulnerable uh, are in an area that doesn't have great self-service, if it's got self-service at all. A lot of these folks are probably not sitting there with high-speed internet on their computers waiting to get notice from you. Um, You know, it's just a really difficult situation to initiate successful evacuations in such a short period of time and i know when something like this happens we all always want to try and um, find out who was at fault or you know where did we drop the ball but you know sometimes nature just overwhelms us and the 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 cost to trying to be prepared for something like this in the future would be immense because we would have to instrument every single little watershed in Western North Carolina. Uh, And, you know, I just, I'm just not sure that we're going to get to that. And as I said, even if we did, we wouldn't have gained hours of warning for an event like this Uh, in an area that would be very complicated to reach out to people. So, you know, I would say this is the Um, The bad news of all of this is that the best solution for keeping people safe from the next event is not improving our ability to reach them. It's to make sure that we don't put them back in some place that is dangerous and in a structure that is very sensitive to flooding. So, you know, at the end of the day, the best solution to make sure this doesn't happen again is to make sure that vulnerable individuals are not in a a structure that uh, is not flood resistant in a place that is exposed to flooding and you know that's not necessarily the, the answer that everybody wants to hear because a lot of folks typically want to just want they want to go back where they live where they grew up where they've always been but that's the only way to ensure that we're not going to lose lives the next time that there's an event like this. And if you live anywhere in Western North Carolina in a a steep drainage uh, and watershed like the East Fork of the Pigeon or the West Fork of the Pigeon, you 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 really need to take a serious look at your preparedness for getting out. uh, Look at your structure and where it's located. And understand that when there's a rain event like this, you should probably go stay with some relatives somewhere else.
1: A really good point. Of, so many good points in that answer. But one that really struck me is that it is sort of the tributaries to the to the main rivers in the area that caused the flooding a month ago. Why, I guess, are those sorts of waterways, why are they so susceptible to climate change and these more powerful storms causing these problems?
0: Yeah, well, t- Typically, those are the areas that we don't have to worry about quite as much because the flooding... Uh, that, that we're accustomed to is t- happening downstream, right, when they all come together. But if you get a tremendous amount of precipitation that occurs very rapidly in one little watershed, then, you know, this precipitation in Haywood County was a perfect example of how we can have the kind of flood and the amount of water in in that river and even in those The the tributaries to the East Fork and the West Fork that we've never experienced before. And uh, the role that climate change is, you know, it's it's a little bit difficult to pin down. Um, I mean, I'm always uncomfortable blaming any one event on changing climate, but uh, climate change is going to lead to an increase in the number of events like this simply because warmer air can hold a lot more water, not just a little bit more water, but warmer air on average over time can hold a lot more water. And so we're going to see rainfall go up and we're going to see it uh, typically go up in events like this. And so that's the linkage between climate change and you know what we saw here in our
1: community a few weeks ago. My last question, which I wanted to go back to some of your earlier answers, you said, until we start taking this seriously, this will continue. So to you, what is taking it seriously in practice? When you see something, when you finally see something occur and then you go like, we're now taking it seriously, what's that going to look like? What will that be when Rob Young says, yes, we're taking this seriously now?
0: <laughs> that's a, That's a really big and complicated question. I mean, I'll I'll put it this way, Matt. You know, I've spent my career priding myself on the fact that I can work with people on any side of the political spectrum. I mean, I've been appointed to advise both Democratic and Republican administrations to work on issues related to coastal hazards and flooding and coastal change. And, you know, honestly, I spent a lot of that time working on what scientists call adaptation, which is getting ready to adapt to flooding. And with Adaptation is convenient when you're working in the world of politics, because you're not putting the blame for that flooding on anything. You're just recognizing that there's flood exposure, and we need to do something about it. So adaptation is easy to work with. What I'm coming to realize is that no matter how much money we spend, we can't adapt our way out of coastal hazards or flood hazards inland. You know ultimately, what we really need to do is solve the big elephant in the room, which is changing climate. And um, quite simply, that means we have to change what we're putting in the atmosphere. You know it's not just about what we put on the ground. Seawalls and buildings and things like that. It's about what we put in the air. And if we have any hope of reducing our hazards in the future, maintaining the coastal economy of eastern North Carolina and the rest of the U.S., we have to get very serious about how we move away from fossil fuels towards clean energy that is not increasing the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, I will. On a positive note, I like to end on a positive note. I will say that that is in fact happening and it's happening without the government playing a gigantic role. I mean, everybody was up in arms about the Green New Deal. Well, the Green New Deal is happening without Congress even getting involved. Uh, I drove with my family out to New Mexico last summer and we crossed the Texas panhandle and there were more windmills than there were oil rigs. Uh, You know, Clean energy is coming. Uh, The sooner that we all embrace it, the better. And, you know, it provides us with energy security. It's going to provide us with jobs, and it will ultimately solve the climate change problem and reduce our long-term vulnerability at the coast and inland here in the mountains. And when you don't have that moving target anymore, the money that you spend on adaptation is a long-term investment and not a short-term investment. And, you know, that's why we have to tackle both climate change mitigation and adaptation at the same time.